Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of For Your Isolation, your source for entertainment during these dark and uncertain times. I am one of your regular Real Me and co-hosts, Joel Copeland, and even though the other regular co-host, Chase Lee, is not here today, I am joined by a guest. I'm joined by Thomas Mariani, co-host of the Double-Edged Double Bill podcast. I'll let him explain what that is in a second. Uh, And we are here to talk about the best films of 2008. Um, to follow up my solo list of the best films of 2009. And before we go any further, just make sure to like this podcast, subscribe on whatever uh, podcast uh, platform you are listening to, listening to this on. Uh, and Thomas, it's great to have you on. We've been, you know, internet friends for a long time. Uh, this very night is the first night that we've ever verbally spoken to each other. It's great to have you on, and uh, explain what what uh, what you do on your podcast. Village Devil Bill is basically a show where uh, myself and my co-host Adam Thomas each week we select a random double feature based around a topic, um, and each of us has two either two good choices or two bad choices. We switch off on that quality, and then um, we, the other person will pick a number between one and ten because the, that person who has like the two good choices has assigned each number each film a number between one and 10 and the other person's done the same for the opposites of vice versa. So that's what gets us. For example, Mm. we released a recent episode that was about the late great Max von Sydow and our random double feature was the seventh seal and the 1990s judge dread movie. Just (laughs) an example. That's how weird that is. (laughs) That's the, uh, that's the best pairing ever. Just, just the best, just the best. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, that's a great concept. It's uh, yeah, it's a great concept. And uh, yeah, I've been seeing you. You've been it's been a while that you've had that going, right? Uh, how long how long have y'all had that going? Two years and we're about to release our 100th episode. Wow. And, uh, OK, yeah. that's awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. When we had to bring all this to a pause just because of, you know, everything happening, happening in the world, we were. We were at episode 318, so I totally understand, like, just these these kinds of uh, big, you know, uh, event episodes almost. We had our 300th, and we couldn't believe it. Uh, now, it wasn't my 300th, but it was his, because he had started this way before ever I ever joined. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. All right, well, let's get into it. Best films of 2008. You know, it was the year of Slumdog Millionaire for the Academy. Uh, Danny Boyle's romantic thriller starring Dev Patel and Freda Pinto took home eight prizes, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, will the film show up on either of our lists? Uh, I, I don't know. Can we can we tease people? Is it going to show up on your list, Thomas? Hey, now, no. I like that movie. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I, I do like it. Uh, it would be in, an, in a list of honorable mentions if we were going to do that. We're not really doing a segment devoted to that. Um, it would be in that in that list. Uh, I do like it quite a bit, but yeah, it, it did escape minds. Um, uh, all right, well, let's get it started. What is your number 10 film of 2008? 10 film is a film from very celebrated directors. They had just come off of uh, the previous year being the big winners of uh, a bunch of Oscars for No Country for Old Men. I have the Joel Nathan Cohen's Burn After Reading, mm. which I feel is a very underrated one in their filmography. 
I've told people I really love this one. They're like, oh, really? That's not my favorite Coen's. But it's one of those, like many Coen Brothers movies, that every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. And I increase my enjoyment of it every time. Because I think it's the best comedic performance from like most of the people in that very sprawling cast. Malkovich is hilarious in it. George Clooney is very funny. Though, top tier. Brad Pitt's like physical performance in particular in Burn After Reading is something we don't deserve as a society. Because it's such a phenomenal... <laughs> Kimmy performance, all the stuff like, do you think this is a Schwinn or him just dancing? It's so effortless and so great. But also like Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, a lot of great comedic turns from all those people as well. And it's a great example of like a sort of comedy of errors about errors in perception that the Coens love to do, where people think like, oh, this means something huge. It's like, not really. No, you guys are just screwing up all the time. <laughs> this is completely <laughs> out of your zone of perception whatsoever. And I think it's really well shot. Um, I believe that one is Emmanuel Lubonesky, who they've collaborated with a couple more times after that. That was the first time they did. And it's an incredibly looking, an incredible looking studio comedy as well. And I just think in their overall filmography, it deserves a lot more attention. And love. Oh yeah. It's, it's fantastic. This is another one that would be in my honorable mentions. If we were, if we were getting into that list, uh, it's certainly been on old drafts of a top 10 of 2008. So that tells you it's probably pretty high. On that list of honorable mentions, I completely agree with everything you said. Brad Pitt, when you mentioned him, just in my head popped up him dancing with his iPod earbuds in. And I love it. I I mean, the whole the ending of that movie and the and the the kind of the I don't know if it's a gut punch of of emotionality. It's probably a comedic gut punch. But everything that happens between his character and Clooney's character and and everybody just is just a, a, a comic masterstroke. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, and in fact, I actually am, uh, with my number 10, I am starting out with a comedy as well. Uh, mine is a much more, much more major studio comedy. It's also R-rated, but it is Ben Stiller's Tropic Thunder. Uh, this is the outrageous Hollywood satire starring Stiller, Jack Black, and Robert Downey Jr. as a trio of actors trying to put past failures or past perceptions of them on the back burner when a major war film uh, uh, kind of an apocalypse now style war film uh, offers them an opportunity to re to like rebrand their image and uh, I just think basically that this movie kind of plays as Robert Altman's the player if it had been filtered through the Farrelly brothers um, because it's got this really really just impeccable craft to it great supporting cast including danny mcbride matthew mcconaughey steve coogan uh and then obviously tom cruise in a golden globe nominated performance uh as the profane studio executive who would much rather make money than save his movie stars uh it's just a total blast i've seen it multiple times and it gets me every time uh i'm generally a fan of stiller's directorial efforts um you know, not Zoolander 2, but I do like the first one, and uh, I like uh, The Cable Guy, and I think that he's just incredibly gifted at taking his characters, and which are often very pompous, and then knocking them down like several dozen pegs, and he does that here, too. Uh, you know, the jokes surrounding Robert Downey Jr.'s character, for instance, is that he's this infamous method actor who has won an Oscar five times, by the way, which is completely... Uh, ludicrous it hasn't even happened in real life to anybody um and he surgically dyed his skin to play the african-american staff sergeant it's just you know an academy award nominated performance um very funny he really commits to it and that just is 
true of the whole thing. I think it has a great sense of craft too. I mean, John Toll shot this and he's the guy who shot, you know, films like Braveheart and Legends of the Fall and The Thin Red Line. And to then take on this, which is a spoof of, you know, war films and a spoof of Hollywood is just, it's a great, it's a great choice for cinematographer. I can't believe he did it. It's great. And uh, yeah, just, I love Tropic Thunder and it's my number 10. Uh, Is this going to be on your list? It was one I contemplated. Um, I do like this Mm. one quite a bit. I think the first two thirds are like gangbusters comedy. I do really agree. I think it's, it was in like the one, two punch of this and Iron Man within one year really just brought Robert Downey Jr. out of complete, just like lower levels uh, mm-hmm. and started his journey to becoming a guy who makes $50 million off Avengers <laughs> movies, uh, which is right. amazing for the thing about it. But um, I, I do agree. I think especially when you think about movies about people making movies, it's so hit or miss because it could be, you know, the worst examples are ones where people are a bit up their own butts, as it were, um, and just kind of like <laughs> it's too inside baseball. Whereas this one is so ludicrous in a, and so bombastic in a way that it really works. I think it gets a bit too action heavy in like the third act, mm. but there's still, it's very fun. I don't begrudge that being an entry at all. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I guess I agree with that. That's probably why it's not a little bit higher. Uh, it does, it does lean into that a little bit. Um, what is your number nine? Number nine is um, a film uh, from another great Oscar-winning director, the late great Jonathan Demme. It is Rachel Getting Married, uh, which I would consider his last really great narrative work. No offense to A Master Builder or uh, Ricky and the Flash, but I think Rachel Getting Married is sort of like a masterpiece of him, especially getting into digital technology and just really immersing you in the atmosphere of this wedding. For all like the good joyous stuff, like I think the actual wedding sequence is phenomenal in this movie. Some people complain, oh, it's not that realistic, but it's like it's so heartwarming in a way that Demi can only really do. Um, but it's also a really great showcase for Anne Hathaway. It was her really showing that she could be a great dramatic actress as opposed to just a comedic one in some of her other movies uh, before this. Uh, and I think it just captures the, really the horrific awkwardness of a family recovering from a huge tragedy in a way that I think is really stellar. And I think it's just, it's a beautiful movie that I, uh, I hope more people will discover in the years to come. Well, it's way up higher on my list. So I'll get it. I'll get to it later, but I agree with put a pin in that. <laughs> yes. Put a pin in that. Exactly. Uh, yes. My number nine, weirdly enough, I'm actually going with another comedy. And then this is the last comedy uh, <laughs> on my list. And it's actually not even really a comedy because it's extremely dark, but it is In Bruges from director Martin McDonough. And this one stars Colin Farrell and Brennan Gleeson as a pair of hitmen who are sent to Belgium, the city of Bruges in Belgium, to hide uh, while an accidental killing blows over. Basically, Farrell's Ray had killed a, an altar boy uh, while performing a hit, and their boss, played by Ray Fiennes, wants them to hide. But then he dis- the boss decides, no... Uh, he wants another mission, and he wants it of Gleason. You can probably do the math and uh, find out what I'm talking about. But uh, basically, this has become McDonough's style. He will mix this very fatalistic kind of um, melancholy with a, a sense of fatalistic comedy, too. I use the word fatalistic a lot because that's pretty much what he's dealing with here. And obviously some graphic violence, too, especially with the shootout at the end. Um, Bruges is brought to vibrant life. Uh, it, this movie looks gorgeous. The cinematographer is by Egil Brind, I think, or Brild or something. Um, somebody I wasn't familiar, so familiar with 
before this movie, I think has done some other work. Um, it's been really good. I, I can't name it right now, but it's, uh, but yeah, really, really impressive cinematography. The performances here from Farrell and Gleason, uh, particularly Gleason, I, uh, one of his best performances. Um, he likes working with McDonough brothers because uh, he's done, he did Calvary for John Michael McDonough as well. And uh, they're great. Fines is terrific as this extremely vulgar crime boss. Um, just hilarious. And of course, when the shoe drops at the end and, and everything turns into a shootout, it actually kind of reveals its humanity. There's a real surprise to this movie that, you know, it doesn't just become this romp, uh, although it kind of works as one just with a very, very sad core. Um, and I love it. I, I, I just think it's, uh, it's fantastic. So yeah, that's my number nine is in Bruges. And Mike, cause that's going to pop up later on this list of mine. Okay. Uh, but just a quick thing. Excellent. Also, speaking of Gleason in McDonough movies, also would recommend The Guard, which is also by John Michael. Yeah, I've, I've heard really good Incredible. things. Incredible. He's just so good in that one, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, what is your number eight? My number eight, um, it's also a comedy. We've been getting a lot of yucks in the beginning of this uh, <laughs> podcast here. Uh, but it's, it's a bit subdued with a bit of drama here and there. And this is one actually I discovered in doing research for this particular episode because I had a few slots open and I was like, do I want to fill with something I've already seen before? Do I want to explore some of these other ones I haven't seen? And um, it's a film by Mike Lee and it is Happy Go Lucky, which um, is a film starring Sally Hawkins. Uh, Basically, if you don't know, this is a bit more obscure. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay when it came out. Uh, But basically, it's the story of Sally Hawkins playing uh, this primary school teacher in England uh, who is just trying to live her life. And it's a very sort of slice of life story about her just going around teaching kids and also kind of taking one kid out of a certain um, bad situation in his life and also learning to drive under the uh, instruction of Eddie Marzan, who's an incredible, just like angry twerp of a character that's kind of sadly relevant in certain ways, uh, given certain online internet culture stuff. Uh, But I think it's a phenomenal performance from Hawkins where she kind of plays something close to a manic pixie dream girl but she has more of a sense of self-reliance and a lot more of just like, it's about her and her journey, her trying to like, just, you know, live life. And people question her saying, Oh, why why are you sort of like happy, you know, living in an apartment with your friends and not like having a husband or having a family at this point. And she just says like, no, I just have fun and enjoy my life where I am right now. I don't have to really go further at this point. I might go further later, but I want to kind of stay where I am at the moment. There's something kind of beautiful to the way she performs it. And especially when sort of people try and attack her and kind of come up with their own sort of insecurities about their positions and their lives kind of following the status quo while she kind of, you know, lives, you know, at 30 with a bunch of people, but still feels very happy. Go lucky, as it were. It's, a, it's truth in advertising, that title. So I would definitely, this is one that's very <laughs> obscure. I would definitely recommend a lot of people catch it. Yeah, this is this is a blind spot of mine. I missed it. Uh, the whole like scene of like releasing limited uh, theatrical runs in Dallas in 2008. I actually think I was living somewhere else at the time was pretty bad and it was even worse where I was living. And so, yeah, I just, I just had missed this. Uh, I wanted to try to catch up with more movies in preparation for this list, but there's, you know, just been a lot of uncertainty about jobs and stuff and including mine and certain things came together early this week and I just didn't have time. I did catch up with one movie though. And in fact, it is at my number eight slot as well. So we both <laughs> caught up with a movie that, that landed at number eight. Um, and mine was the Palme d'Or victor 
at that year's Cannes Film Festival. It's called The Class, and it hails from filmmaker Lorraine Conte. Uh, this general concept might be familiar to American audiences. Essentially, it is about a well-to-do teacher who inserts himself into the lives of his economically challenged and race, racially diverse students. You know, seen it in films like Stand and Deliver and, and Freedom Riders. But Americans are probably not quite prepared for what this movie has in store because it stars Francois Begodeau, uh, who wrote the novel that the, bil- that the film is based on and also lived the experiences of the character that he plays uh, as a teacher before he got into the film world. Uh, the character is also named Francois, and he can be kind of pompous. Uh, he can be pretty pompous. He uses his privilege in ways that maybe he doesn't realize he's damaging lives in the process of doing it. And without spoiling anything, that's essentially what the story becomes. Uh, he inserts himself into these lives, trying to think that he can make a difference, and he makes all the wrong kind of differences. And it's just really, once it reveals itself to be about that, it really stands apart from those stories that are the inspirational school message movies that we know. And, um, you know, some of us love, some of us tolerate, some of us hate them. Um, this one's a really special one, though. It really stands apart. And uh, Begado's performance is tremendous. And there's some really good actors playing his students, too. Uh, so, yeah, worth checking out. I don't know the situation in terms of, like, where it is streaming if it's if it's available but it's uh it's fantastic so certainly worth checking out number eight the class is this one that you've seen yes i remember i believe it was a foreign film at the time at that particular oscars but that that was like many foreign films it's like a dumb american I'm like oh, i didn't see the, the different language movie uh, <laughs> that's not my fun <laughs> uh, but no i that's that sounds interesting <laughs> something i should catch up on Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah, definitely worth it. Uh, what is your number seven? Um, is a film I revisited for the first time since 2008, uh, just before the show. Um, and it was one I definitely was curious about, like, is it going to end up being there? Uh, like, I was worried it might not hold up as well. But um, it shot up to being one of my favorites from one of my favorite directors working right now. who's a bit controversial, understandably, a bit divisive. Um, I have Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler which um, I think it's an incredible movie about basically just being a performer in a field that isn't necessarily that well-respected and kind of realizing that you also can like be in a state of lower tier sort of status when you don't really like respect people around you and you kind of grow to regret that. I think it's a phenomenal performance from obviously uh, Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei. And the movie's especially interesting considering when you find out how much everybody hated working with Mickey Rourke and how much it was like, basically made in editing a lot of especially the relationship between him and Tomei uh, still manages to work incredibly because both of them are very talented performers and the editing is actually pretty crisp despite how much you notice they're not framed that much together because they really hate each other <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's a really down to earth one from Aronofsky who would just come off of the fountain which was obviously a big ex- extravagant special effects showcase and this is a very down to earth very human story just about a guy who just realizes like all this fame and stuff is something that I can only cling to because I've just completely destroyed all my relationships elsewhere. Um, and I think it works so much in a piece with my favorite Aronofsky movie, Black Swan. It was originally conceived as the two movies. The, the two movies were supposed to be one. The rest of the subplot was supposed to be part of the other one. And I thought they did an incredible job of uh, just like segmenting this off into being a very intimate, personal little drama um, that really works so well, especially the last five to ten minutes of this movie are like cinematic gold and i was never a wrestler person 
But this was the movie I remember that got me to respect wrestling, not necessarily as like, oh, you know, it's fake, as I was at the time. It's like, oh, no, it's an art form. And these other like wrestlers respect each other and they plan out their routines and stuff, all leading up to one of my favorite like climaxes like ever in a movie. Mm. This whole ending wrestling ring bit. I'm just like, oh, give him the red gem. Oh no! It just—it really, really gets me really hard. Yeah, I, I love the wrestling a lot. It's fantastic, and I'm gonna put a pin in that because it's way up on my list. Uh, but I—I I love the movie. I love the movie. So uh, we'll get into it in part two of this episode. Uh, my number seven. I actually realized I don't know how you feel about this one, um, but. My number seven is an underappreciated title among its director's works. Uh, it's a big, kind of brash, old-fashioned Hollywood epic. Um, it comes from a director who uh, people weren't really used to him giving us one of those. He was a director of procedurals for the most part. Um, and I am talking about David Fincher's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, this one is the one that stars Brad Pitt as Benjamin Button, who is born as the, as the result of a comic a, or comic cosmic accident. Um, he's born as an elderly man with failing health, and he ages backwards to become an infant at the time of his death. And it's uh, adapted from a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It um, follows his romantic kind of separation drama uh, when sort of um, with Daisy, uh, played by. Kate Blanchett across several decades. And uh, yeah, I mean, Roth isn't a, a, a screenwriter. Eric Roth uh, isn't a stranger to these kinds of stories. I mean, he also adapted Forrest Gump, uh, however you feel about that movie. And um, so obviously, you know, this, this kind of works in a similar way. Uh, narratively speaking, it's, you know, a character that is um, maybe not an everyman, <laughs> Uh, in many in very different ways, uh, both of those, but he kind of lives through history and we see it. We we're able to witness that with him. And it's a movie of incredible scope, real aesthetic beauty. I just, I love the cinematography here. The score is beautiful by Alexandre Desplat, one of his best, which is saying something. And, um, you know, I think that it throws a lot of caution to the wind sort of like my number six, actually. Uh, they're both tied together in that way, and I'll get to that one in a, in a second. Um, but it really does throw a lot of caution to the wind, and I like that. I, I like movies that are ambitious, that are daring, that are willing to misstep. Uh, maybe this movie does sometimes uh, in terms of its reach, but for me, that just makes it all the more notable. Um I don't know if it's top tier Fincher. That's a pretty high bar to meet. Uh, my favorite is Fight Club. I also love Zodiac. Uh, Social Network came later, and um, and yeah, it, it, he makes great movies. But this one certainly was an oddity. I mean, it seemed more like Fincher in Tim Burton territory, almost. Uh, there's a similar. I think that if Burton had directed this, there would be a similar uh, feel to it. Maybe maybe a little more uh, goth in its <laughs> cinematography as Burton is, is, uh, uh, is known for. But in this case, I, I just think that it is a really just fantastic um, 
old-fashioned Hollywood epic of a kind that we didn't really get a whole lot of in the 2000s in this way. And I don't think that we've gotten it very often since then either. Um, it's really sincere. Uh, Pitt's performance is fantastic. He was nominated for this. Blanchett's amazing, was not nominated for this for some reason. Um, uh, specifically, there's a sequence where something horrible happens to her, to her leg, um, and, and it sh- definitely needs to not happen to her. And then there's this sequence that brings us back through, you know, what might have happened if one thing had been different. I just, it's one of the, the scenes of the whole year uh, for me. And it just, uh, you know, when I rewatched it, I think it was last year or maybe the year before that. I think it was last year, though. Um, that one, I had to just back it up and watch it again. That scene uh, of that kind of alternate universe, you know, what would have happened if one thing had been different. I just love that. And this is a movie that is divisive, is divisive, but I am firmly on the pro camp. Uh, I do, I do love it. So yeah, that's my number seven, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Were you, uh, how do you feel about this one? I've seen it since it was in the theater. Um, and I remember liking okay. it a lot at the time. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily held up as well because it's been 12 years now since I've seen it. Um, but I remember the thing is certain like scenes that you're referencing, I remember like that scene with her leg and stuff like that. So it still does stick with me to some degree. I would consider lower tier Fincher, but as you said, it's a high bar. There's only like one Fincher movie I would argue. Yeah. I'm liking it's Alien 3. Uh, but even then, I still kind of respect that mm. movie more than most. But in case of uh, Curious Case of Benjamin, I do respect it for that's the first time I saw a lot of the actors that are in there. Like, it's the first time I remember seeing Jared Harris mm-hmm. in something, Mahershala Ali. Um, also, I believe, isn't Elle Fanning the young version of Kate Blanchett, right? Yes. Yeah, the youngest. Yeah, the youngest one. And then uh, also, I don't know if you were going to say this, but Taraji P. Henson. Uh, seen her, but that was kind of one, one of the first. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's one fantastic. I contemplated uh, revisiting right. and I will say, but then again, I realized, oh, it's two hours and 45 minutes. I, I really don't have, I think that's the thing is people <laughs> might not be, be more, more intimidated. It's like, oh, two hours, 45 minutes. I got to carve out like a whole part of my day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It is, it is a long one. It commits to that length yes. though. And I, I think that that's nice, but yeah, no, in terms of having the time to, to do it in a day where you might be doing something else. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. Um, yeah. All right. Well, what is it's time for your number six? Uh, my number six is a film uh, from a company that I think is kind of depleted in sort of consistent quality in the last uh, decade or so. But this is, I think, one of their biggest bright spots, especially in like their sort of golden period, I would argue, from about 2004 to 2010. They were just on all cylinders. It's Pixar's Wally. Uh, from Andrew Stanton, um, which is a movie that I mean, some people kind of give it some crap about, like the back half of it, especially when we get sort of the more of the human characters as opposed to our protagonist, the little robot. Um, but I think it earns so much respect for that first half where it is just like, hey, we're going to follow this little trash robot on a mostly barren earth and his cockroach sidekick, and then a little Apple style robot, <laughs> Eve, that drops out of the sky. Um, and that sort of weird courtship I find so adorable and so engaging, but it's such an interesting portrait of sort of a, not necessarily post-apocalyptic Earth, but definitely like an Earth that's been abandoned in a way that I think it, it, it still rings very true. And even with some of the stuff where we get to sort of the humans on the cruise ship, you know, I, c- I can see 
some people being like, oh, what happened to the lack of dialogue? What happened to the simplicity of the story? But there's still incredible moments that are throughout all of that. Like, especially the sequence where it's um, Wally and Eve are sort of like dancing with each other in the sky while he's got the little fire extinguisher. And it's over Thomas Newman's supremely underrated score for this movie, which I think is amazing. I just love so many of these great sequences here. Um, And it's risky for Pixar, given like the biggest star in this movie is Jeff Garland. Like, usually with their celebrity-filled <laughs> casts. Uh, but I think it does a, a really good job of really immersing a kid audience into sort of this message of, like, hey, we should preserve the Earth and sort of, like, make the world a better place for you and Wally to be around with. But also adults can kind of glean a bit more stuff, especially in terms of, you know, you might be stuck in your house. You might feel like, man, am I just going to be on, like, a hover cart at some point in the next couple of weeks, uh, you know, it kind of, it, it's, it speaks so wonderfully to both kids and adults in a way that great Pixar movies always do. Yeah. You know, this one is, I love it. I love it. Uh, I think that for me, like what separates it, it's not on my list, basically. Uh, it's just outside it. it. It would certainly be in a top 15 if we were going to talk about a top 15. Um, I think that, not it's not a problem because I don't really have a problem with it. I think that what's separating it from my list and the reason that I didn't like go to it immediately as being one that would be an obvious choice is just that back half that you're talking about, which I think is just less uh, it's sort of the same reason that that actually up the next year didn't make my top 10 of 2009 because there's a similar thing going on where it just starts off so strong. And then potentially, I feel like it just front loads every, <laughs> almost its best material. And everything with Wally in that first half, when, and then when he meets Eva, uh, and all of that is just masterful. And the, the, you know, the animation is incredible. The score, as you said, is fantastic. Um, and and then and then the human characters come in. I think it be, just becomes slight slightly more ordinary, um, and you know, just as just as you know, it's relevant. Certainly, just maybe loses just a little bit of its luster enough that it just you know. I had ten other movies that I couldn't uh, part with right. <laughs> on my list, and um, yeah, I mean, I feel bad about it every time I every time I make a list like this of this year, and I don't have that one on there. I'm like you know, where can I put it on here? And I just, yeah, it just doesn't make it. But, I mean, Joel, um, you know, it's all fine. This is all opinion here, but also you should feel bad. You're terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> I will just, just go, just go live in isolation. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a bad joke right now. Still, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's use, let's use bad jokes to get through this. Um, my number six is kind of tied together with Benjamin Button in terms of the fact that it's another movie where it's a filmmaker of pretty considerable vision, although he's making his directorial debut here, uh, and he's just throwing a lot at the wall in a movie that was re- have really got a lot of responses that suggested that it was really grossly self-indulgent. But I think that that's part of the point of Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Uh, and this is the story of a playwright, played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. His name is Caden Cotard, who is slowly dying from a blood disorder, and he's decided he's going to make a play out of his own life. And in order to do this, he rents out a massive storage unit, converts it into studio space, and builds a life-size version of Manhattan within that, within that st- uh, studio space that's also in Manhattan. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to. 
but it, it but it comes complete with aircraft flying overhead. It's uh, it's pretty amazing to see. It's a masterpiece, certainly of production design, um, and the story basically just follows a series of toxic relationships that he has with women as he comes to grips with his mortality through the uh, uh, through the prism of this play, um, and specifically through a connection and partnership with an obsessive actor played by Tom Noonan. Now, the the women that he that he has these relationships with various kinds. Of relationships, not just romantic, um, include the likes of Samantha Morton, Catherine Keener, Michelle Williams, Emily Watson, Jennifer Jason Lee, Diane Weist. It's an amazing cast. It's a big, brash, unapologetic, conceptual gamble, but it somehow works against all logic. Maybe that's why it's not in my top five. Um, it certainly could be. Uh, it's another one of those that that throws everything at the wall to, to see what works. Most of it works. Enough of it works that it's this high on my list. Um, it's also very messy, and a lot of people you know, saw that, and it's entirely understandable uh, to think that about this movie. But I just love the, cho- the choices and the risks. I think that it's uh, a tremendous performance piece for Hoffman, who you know, sadly passed away earlier this decade, uh, this past decade. And... Um, yeah, it's maybe, uh, you know, I have no idea what his best performance is, is. It might be this one. It might be some other one. But it is a fantastic uh, work from him, as usual. And, uh, yeah, I, I love, 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 love this one. I really wish that Kaufman would just – is he directing that thing that he the, – the adaptation of his um, book? I can't remember, but um, – or an adaptation of that book. It wasn't his book. Anyway, yeah, I'm thinking of ending things or whatever. Mm-hmm, it's yeah. the Netflix. Uh, I think, I think. Yeah, but Charlie Kaufman, but, uh, we don't even know. <laughs> like, that's half the mystery of Charlie Kaufman. It's like, we have no yeah, idea. Right. <laughs> we don't know if it's Donald Kaufman. Uh, but <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And I, and I love Kaufman as a, as a, as a screenwriter. I mean, I'm going to get into <laughs> a couple of, other, of his other movies in this series of top tens that I'm doing. Uh, for sure, because he's he's a genius and uh, genuine genius. I I love the guy, um, love his work, and uh, yeah. So that's my number six. Is this going to be higher on your list or? Uh, well, you know, I'm going to get up a little corkboard here because I'm going to put another pin in that. Going to talk about it later. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I like I like hearing that. All right, folks. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We have reached our number six, um, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. You're going to hear an ad, and then we're going to uh, uh, talk about our choices for the fifth through the first episode, uh, episode <laughs> uh, picks for our list on this special episode about the best films of 2008. So uh, we'll be right back, folks. Hey, everybody, we are back. You just heard our picks from 10 to 6, the first half of our picks for the best films of 2008, this special episode. One of our episodes to keep you, uh, you know, occupied during this period of time where you might be in self-imposed isolation or general quarantine, whatever it might be. Um, It's a great year, 2008. And we've just covered our first respective first uh, five choices. And we're going to go ahead now and move on to 
our number five film of 2008. Thomas, what is your number five? Um, my number five is um, um, it's the first foreign film I have on my list. Um, and it is Tomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In, uh, which I think is one of the best sort of vampire uh, horror films of the last couple decades or so. I think it's such an incredible job of immersing you in this very disturbed situation uh, with our two characters of uh, Ellie and Oscar. If you don't know, basically, Oscar's a very lonely boy in the 80s in Sweden who uh, doesn't have many friends. People pick on him all the time. And uh, he finds some connection with Ellie, who's this new mysterious girl um, who, as we kind of find out along the way, is a vampire. Um, and she has um, a paternal figure who you find out is more of a familiar and things go along on that track from there. Um, I find it so fascinating because there's a lot of like creepy material in here. In fact, I read the source material a couple years ago when I did a panel at Dragon Con about what the right one in. Um, and I'm not a fan of that source material at all. I think it's a very, it kind of is like the worst case scenario for me of all these concepts in Let the Right One In. Because I think Tomas Albertson has this sort of creepy starkness that almost makes it feel like kind of a, the, what a horror Wes Anderson movie would eventually be if he ever makes that. <laughs> I hope he makes that, honestly. I would love to see that. But um, I, it feels kind of like very stark and plain, but in a way that's really immersive still. You find sort of the weird humanity between these two characters, even in a very stark surroundings. And it has, I think, two top tier horror sequences of this century with there's one in a hospital bed that's really disturbing mm -hmm. and there's one that's sort of the climactic scene at a pool that i think is one of the best horror sequences in a while i think it's just so incredible and engaging and i am a huge fan of this one and i even like the remake as well which i think is uh, undervalued in terms of horror remakes yeah i like the i like the remake i i like this one a lot better it's not on my list but you know i've been mentioning that movies that would be you know at 11 through 15 this is another one i i really admire this uh the craft of it um this is one shot by hotevan hoitema by the way uh kind of before he really broke through into the hollywood mold and it's um yeah it's fantastic uh alfredson came back with Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then everything died <laughs> with his career with, <laughs> with, with The Snowman, uh, whatever that was. So, But yeah, I, I do love this one. And I think that um, uh, that scene with the pool is like etched in my mind, uh, every, every inch of it. And I like it so much more than the remake. I, I, I do like the remake pretty well. I think that what the remake lacks is the suggestiveness of this movie right in certain ways you know it specifies the time period all that uh still very good i'm very i like matt reeves as a director a lot very good but yeah what alfredson had over this was just this real like clenching sense of dread throughout the whole thing and also at the same time a pretty uh a pretty nice little friendship movie such as such as it is uh there's some really um you know heartwarming stuff in here as, as, as much as it can be heartwarming the friendship that they develop is really well uh well established by the young actors uh, i've forgotten their names but um great child performances uh two of them so yeah great choice my number five is a biography interestingly enough and it's one of the best biographies i think of the 2000s uh, and that is and it kind of awkwardly stars some fairly problematic favorites, if you will. But, um, but that is Milk uh, from director Gus Van Zandt. Uh, this is the account 
of the quite turbulent life, the rise to politics, and the death by assassination of Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay man to become an elected official in California history. Uh, he's played by Sean Penn in a performance that really kind of twists the actor's own persona as, well, <laughs> to, put it, to put it plainly, Sean Penn is kind of a grump. I mean, that's what he just, he just comes across as a grump. Joel, no! Uh, <laughs> Joel, I can't believe this! <laughs> right. But, man, he transforms completely uh, into this person, and in a way that is pretty amazing. But it's not just the performance. Uh, I think that what Van Zant and his cinematographer, the late Harris Savides, did with color and shadow here is really striking, um, you know, a friend of mine told me that he saw back when this came out, I think, or maybe soon after a, a black and white cut of this movie. And he said, it's interesting. I mean, it's still a great movie, but it lost something with not utilizing the color and shadow, which is, I, which I think is interesting. Um, and also the editing, Elliot Graham, it was nominated. It was kind of the one that everybody was like, oh, that was nominated. Um, but it's a very quixotic rhythm, real editorial prowess shown there. I love the score by Danny Elfman. Great score. The costume design is kind of sneakily, sneakily, completely meticulous. And I, and I really like the cast too. I mean, he has a, a pair of lovers here who find his devotion to politics ruinous played by James Franco and Daniel, Diego Luna, uh, Emil Hirsch and Alison Pill played a couple of colleagues of his who were. Um, just as devoted as he is. And then Josh Brolin is just seething with something. It could be anger, could be guilt, just could be discomfort as the eventual assassin of Harvey Milk, Dan White, who was also uh, on this board that he was on. Um, I think it's a great modern biography. It takes a fairly you know, straightforward screenplay. And I think that just Van Zandt brings it to life in a really compelling way. Um, it's one that surprises me with every viewing. So love this one. Love Gus Van Zandt's Milk, and that's my, that's my number five. Were you a fan of this one? This is another one I haven't seen since the theater, but I remember really liking it. Mm. I think especially because I think Gus Van Zandt's sort of Hollywood career is very hit or miss. I would say this is one of the hits mm -hmm. for sure. I completely agree with you about oh, Sean yeah. Penn because quite frankly, I think this is the first time he's played a likable person since like Fast Times of Richmond High. <laughs> so it's like a 25-year <laughs> gap between those two yeah. uh but no i really like his performance a lot and i think it's it's a really another one in a similar vein to kind of what i spoke about earlier about another one where i this is the first time i saw some of these actors like allison pill it's a great mm -hmm. sort of like early turn for her um and some of these other oh, people yeah. yeah and this is also on the initial tick of josh brolin also kind of coming back between this and uh no country for old men it was like oh wait the goonies kid can act it's been a while, dude. Uh, but no, yeah, yeah. This, um, it's, it's a very good movie. It's one I respect and one I want to rewatch soon. Yeah, Brolin had not been around uh, for a long time. That's right. He was uh, doing like Into the Blue <laughs> crap like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Since the days of thrashing, it's been kind of, it's been kind of quiet for him. And uh, yeah, I, I yeah, love that guy. And, and he's fantastic uh, in this movie for sure. Uh, Well-deserved nomination. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we are up to your number four. Uh, well, your number, my number four was one that you mentioned previously on the list. I'm taking out one of those pins. It is Synecdoche, New York, uh, which is one I didn't ah. discover until fairly recently. Um, even though I love Charlie Kaufman as a screenwriter, as you mentioned, like Adaptation or even Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, some of this other stuff he's written with, especially with Spike Jones. Um, I've 
liked a lot of loved most of his stuff and then this one i only discovered last year and what's so interesting is he said he sort of approached this movie as like he wanted to write a horror movie and this is what came out and i completely agree with that but in the way of just like this is pure (laughs) existential horror nightmare of just like Mm, hey you know um isn't it great that you have a life right now or wait until you get old and you can just see it all displayed in this like this play that you're kind of talking about this surreal weird thing of like this warehouse for an entire version of new york is created um and it's such i agree the production design is phenomenal it's really sad, especially watching this post, you know, the tragic death of Philip Seymour Hoffman and seeing him age in this way in a way that he mm. never got to, unfortunately. It's so incredibly immersively just sad, but in a way that feels very relatable. Just fears about, like, dying and getting older and being ignored by people and sort of seeing better versions of yourself with, like, the ver- version of Philip Seymour Hoffman's being played by another actor. Just the layers. I believe it's in it, Tom Noonan, right? Yes, 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 yes. Who's always yes. amazing. Love that dude. Mm-hmm. And he's incredible there as well. Um, yeah, I think there's just like layers and layers of meta that could seem a bit pretentious, but feel so much more like engaging with every layer. It's like an onion, to quote Shrek. It's like an onion. It has so <laughs> many layers. Um, but it, it's so fascinating to watch unravel to the point where it's one of those movies where I watched it and I'm like, this is such an amazing movie. But I don't know if I'll ever watch it again because it's so incredibly <laughs> depressing. <laughs> But it's an amazing yeah. film. It's definitely an achievement that, you know, watch it once, at least. It's worth that. <laughs> yeah, this is one that I was thinking, you know, maybe I should rewatch this because I haven't seen it in a long time. But it stayed with me, obviously. And then I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to prepare myself. And then I ran out of time to do anything with right. 2008 other than watching the class um, to catch up with it. And yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about it in the terms of this is an existential horror film because it's about a guy who starts to make a play and it never ends. <laughs> and that's that's pretty I mean, that's kind of the 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 the, the terror of of doing that. And that's the fear, kind of the uh, the unspoken fear of playwrights is that just they'll, they'll start a play and then and then I'll never finish it. Uh, and it'll just keep going on and on. And it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the kind of the depression that lays on you with realizing that Philip Seymour Hoffman is gone. And, you know, I had already mentioned the movie. Now you've done it. Now I'm going to mention it. My number four, a film that also had him in it this year. Uh, he had a good year. Uh, and at my number four, I got doubt from director John Patrick Shanley. This is his adaptation of his own stage play, Doubt, a Parable. And it stars Hoffman, but it primarily stars Amy Adams as Sister James. She's a teacher at a Bronx Catholic high school in 1964, New York, who becomes worried about the conduct between a student and the priest of the church, Father Flynn, played by Hoffman. And when she smells alcohol on the boy's breath and witnesses the father placing an undershirt in the boy's locker, she reports that behavior to Sister Aloysius, played by, or Aloysius, I I don't know how to say that name, uh, played by Meryl Streep. Uh, This launches an investigation in which Flynn denies everything, and the boy's mother's called in. She's played in a really heartbreaking cameo by Viola Davis. Um, This movie really confronts head-on the institutional failures that might lead to a situation like this, wherein the conduct of a priest is called into question. It's very timely, uh, even if it's set in this you know, in 60s New York, it's extremely timely for when it came out, when a lot of this stuff was still being, you know, reported um, as front page news a lot. And uh, the performances were all, these these main performances at least, were all nominated. Um, Adams and Davis for Best Supporting Actress, Streep for Best Actress, 
and Hoffman for Best Supporting Actor. And I just found it absolutely compelling, completely heartbreaking at times, and, you know, quiet in terms of its craft, although it is shot by Roger Deakins, um, who had also shot The Reader that year. And uh, so pretty good year in terms of, uh, (laughs) you know, big uh, Oscar movies, although I don't like The Reader at all. Uh, It certainly looks pretty good. And this is the same this is the same situation. It's not, it's not, you know, assassination of Jesse James or whatever, but it's not trying to be, it's a lot of interiors and Deacons really uh, captures that kind of uh, claustrophobic sense of being inside a lot of these, the, the, um, uh, you know, in the, inside this, this, the, the church and the school. And yeah, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's really compelling. And I just caught up with this one a couple of years ago really grabbed me immediately and um yeah love it number four is doubt uh did you were i mean (laughs) at this point you probably have seen it i i'm I'm assuming you saw it uh are you a fan of this one i mean this is another one just like another take on the chart of i saw it at the time i have not seen it since Uh, i remember (laughs) quite liking it a lot um i think especially um speaking once again in terms of just like oh someone put on my radar the Viola Davis has one scene in this movie with Meryl Streep, and she like gets on a tricycle and acts circles around Meryl Streep in that scene. <laughs> she is so phenomenal in that one scene. Oh, yeah. I almost feel like it kind of the movie peaks at that point, which I remember kind of being about halfway through or so, and it kind of trickles off a bit for me after that. But I, I think I agree; all the performances are really good, and I mean I'm a big fan of Sean Patrick Flan- uh, John Patrick Flannery uh, for just like his way of especially getting you really immersed in characters and his like playwrights of how it kind of seeps into him uh doing you know these stage plays where the, i think isn't this his follow-up to joe versus the volcano as a director <laughs> Am I, right? uh, I think oh well i think uh yeah i think so yeah because he's only directed two movies and that that dude yeah look at his imdb <laughs> it's the weirdest imdb <laughs> uh, yeah like, i mean he, oh he... moonstruck we're back a dinosaur story it's weird <laughs> <laughs> it is a strange, it is a strange uh, filmography for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, really solid. I love Moonstruck. Uh, yes. Moonstruck's one of my favorite uh, movies, honestly, just in general. Uh, certainly of the eighties, and yeah, I, the the dude, the dude doesn't miss. Um, I love, 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 love this movie. All right. Well, I think uh, we are around to your. Yeah, we're around to your number three. Yep, uh, my number three. Hey, everybody. It's the time where two white guys talk about the Dark Knight on the internet. Uh, <laughs> it's the obligatory point where that happens. Uh, yeah, because it's uh, Chris Nolan's Dark Knight. I, I don't think I couldn't escape putting this on my list necessarily. Um, it, it's a weird thing where this is like, it's a two and a half hour long movie. It's a big, epic, very sort of um, depressing its own way crime drama with these comic book characters. But every time I watch Dark Knight, I never feel the length. I've watched that movie several times and it just zips by for me in a way few other sort of like bigger bloated blockbusters tend to do. This one never does. Um, and mainly Chris Nolan cribs a lot from Michael Mann. Uh, he might owe him a check for like stealing certain sequences from Heat to a certain extent, <laughs> uh, but he does an incredible job with that. And obviously everyone loves Heath Ledger, of course, one of the like, all iconic performances of all time, great villain performance, amazing, so many great subtle moments. My favorite being the bit where, um, I believe it's Michael Jai White says, do you think you just come in here and threaten everybody? Yeah. One of my favorite little <laughs> bits in that movie. Incredible moment. But I think so much stuff around him is still even great, too. Um, I love the still the dynamic between um, 
Michael Caine and you know uh, Christian Bale as the Bruce Wayne character. Even with his voice, I think uh, that his Batman still has a lot of palpable sort of uh, superhero attention. Um, Gary Oldman's phenomenal moving gets slept on so much. I think he does an incredible job with a part that has some weird like plot contrivances here and there, like many things in this movie do. But it never feels as you're watching, especially like the propulsive just on and on tension of any of the action sequences or any of these beats kind of makes all the flaws melt away in a beautiful way. Um, I think especially with, um, it's one of my favorite endings. I love the whole ending spiel of this movie. Uh, the, the whole narration from Gary Oldman and stuff like that. I think it's just an incredible moment that, you know, I don't hate The Dark Knight Rises, but I'm just almost like, we could have ended here and I would have been fine <laughs> because this is sort of like the perfect way <laughs> to end um, for uh, your Batman here. And, you know, it's also like this movie has a lot of sort of baggage behind it with like fan devotion that might make people turn off it a bit. And if you've been kind of avoiding watching it because of that, I definitely recommend revisiting it again. I still think it's one of the best blockbusters of this decade, for sure. Yeah, it's also my number three, by the way. Hey! Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this works out kind of perfectly. Uh, It's everything you say. I love this movie. Uh, It just, it really, it just works like clockwork. Whether or not there's contrivances in the plot, the way this thing moves is absolutely seamless and you know the dark knight rises is a whole other conversation but uh you know if batman begins felt a little smaller and then dark knight rises went big 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 uh you know for better or worse i think mostly for better um then this is just it's perfectly paced it's 152 minutes none of none of that's wasted uh whether the plot points themselves work that's a whole other conversation but in terms of the pacing of this thing it's unimpeachable and the craft is amazing i mean i think that this has probably the best cinematography of 2008 i love 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 wally fisher's work on this film um every like almost every image feels incredibly just immediately iconographic in a way that is really just it grabs you i mean just from that opening scene and you're right it's got a heat you know (laughs) element to it but it's it's also its own thing because of this this kind of time bomb thrown in this this grenade thrown in in the form of Heath Ledger's Joker which I think is you know it's interesting because my top three films contain my favorite supporting actor uh, performance from the uh, from the nominees I think I should I should clarify that maybe not in general but from the nominees my favorite supporting actor performance that's just general I love Heath Ledger in this I think it's I think he's just beyond amazing um and then we'll see. My number two has my favorite lead actor performance, and my number one has my favorite lead actress and supporting actress performance. So it just kind of uh, uh, works out that way. And I just, I just love how this works as a sequel too, because I think that you know, set, you know, <laughs> kind of putting it in the context of this is a an epic crime drama in the tradition of Scorsese or uh, or Mann you know, The Departed and Heat certainly feel like they exist in this same universe. Uh, the, the How it builds on Batman Begins, which was already great. Uh, I don't know if this is a significant move upward in quality, but it is certainly a significant expansion of this world of Gotham, Gotham City, which, of course, this time had been shot in Chicago and uh, really utilizes Chicago streets very well. And it's also an expansion on the character of Batman, what he means in his own universe when a man, a madman wants to unmask him and will stage mass destruction if he doesn't. 
Um, I also like how the I also like the fact that the stuff with the Joker is kind of bled into the main plot, which is really his attempt, Batman's attempt to take down the mob. That's the that's the main kind of narrative foot foothold that he has that that the film has. Um, and I love how they they kind of bleed the whole the stuff with the Joker into that because then it helps inform the character of Harvey Dent played by Aaron Eckhart in a really underrated performance. Uh, I think that people um, undervalued that, especially in the uh, in the shadow of of, of Heath Ledger, um, and it, it helps you know define his character, and it also gives us a lot of stuff with Gary Oldman's James Gordon who is a much bigger role, takes on a much bigger role in this film than in the first film. Um, yeah, I, I love, I love his, this trilogy of, of movies. I think that, that um, uh, Nolan really made the definitive Batman on screen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the first two, the, the, the Tim Burton films. Uh, we don't need to talk about the Schumachers, but, um, and we also probably don't need to talk about what, uh, <laughs> what the DCEU did with Batman, but it's, uh, but here it's perfect because he's a genuine character with depth. Um, and you know, not in that broy sense. I know that a lot of people will attach this because Nolan to, to this broy sense of like, um, way over self-importance or something. I don't think that that's the case. I think that, that they ground this character just enough, uh, yet also keep him the Batman that we know. Um, it is a comic book movie because it does have this foot in a fantastical world, but it's also incredibly grounded in something that feels like it takes place in Chicago, <laughs> maybe. Um, and I, I love that. I think that it's, um, I think it's a great mix of those two. And just, you know, again, all these performances are great. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a tremendous accomplishment. Um for Nolan, for Christian Bale, I think it's. I think that it's this film when he gives his best performance out of the, the in the trilogy. I would argue that, and um, yeah, uh, I I think it's a uh, it's a great great accomplishment. So yeah, funnily enough, both of our number three. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Uh, you know, I was like we yeah, we sort of like right. behind the scenes for like our relationship, folks. We used to butt heads a lot more about our differences of opinion. We're really. <laughs> think in a way that was like this is unsettling something like what where's when's the shit gonna drop about this but, but i think right, we also right. mentioned like the big thing about this like this actually changed sort of in terms of cinematic scope um this was mm-hmm. it's been all but said that this is the movie that made the academy go from five nominations to ten best picture yes. nominations uh because it was so acclaimed yeah. people got so much criticism for this not being there uh but we had to make room for the reader i guess <laughs> <laughs> And it also, you know, aside from that, it also, for better, mostly for worse, I think, kind of revolutionized the tone of the DC Comics repertoire in mm-hmm. movies uh, in terms of, you know, the visual kind of uh, language that they use and, you know, a lot of darkness, a lot of, they, I think they, what they call it, grim dark yes. now. Uh, and, it's, and it's because of this trilogy um, having perfected that and the fact that it was, it had a director behind it who knew what he was doing. And, and uh, since then, you know, Finally, they've they've found a sense of humor with their last couple of movies, but yeah, for a while there, it wasn't it wasn't looking good. I mean, Green Lantern should have been a thousand percent more fun, and it's because this movie and and all of that came out, and they had to kind of rethink what they were doing, and it went all wrong. And it's just because they didn't have somebody 
so fastidious with his, with their vision as Nolan, who is one of, I think, one of the great modern directors of blockbusters, at least, because he knows exactly what he's doing and everything comes together like clockwork. I, I, I don't dislike a movie from, from the guy. I think he's fantastic. This is certainly one of his better movies, although that's a another pretty yeah. high bar. Um, and uh, yeah, my favorite is um, The Prestige, but you know, oh. still, yeah, I love, love just, this guy's Just films, a brief so. actual thing that happened to me when I saw this movie. I didn't see it till the Monday after it came out, and everyone said it was so great, because we were at uh, Orlando with my family, and I they literally mm. went to Disney Quest, and I'm like, I'm just going to go to the AMC and watch The Dark Knight, and it was so great, I was so enthralled with it, that I'm like, I'm going to stay in this theater, and I'm going to sneak back and watch The Dark Knight again before they get out of Disney Quest. <laughs> so I spent five hours in the theater watching The Dark Knight twice. <laughs> Real story. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, I did see it. I think it was, I think it was four times within two weeks, um, which was also the case for The Dark Knight Rises. By the way, these uh, his movies just grabbed me that way, and um, yeah, I think that Dunkirk's the only one I've seen once in the theater. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. I did see that one again. I was under Interstellar. I didn't see it again in the theater, um, and this one, yeah, it was around the time that I was about to move briefly to Indiana for college. And I saw it, um, my you know, with a friend, with a couple friends, and then I saw it again. Uh, oh, I saw it with a couple friends who then I stayed over with them. It was a midnight show. We got up really early and we saw Space Chimps the next day. And then I saw it again over the weekend. Um, not Space Chimps. The next night. <laughs> Is Space Chimps going to be your number one? I'm waiting. <laughs> yes, that's the that's the big twist, guys. Um, no, but yeah, it, it's just one of those things. It was just, it was such an event, you know, and, uh, and you're right about the Academy and this, this is, this is ground zero for their, you know, expanding the best picture, uh, contenders and, uh, yeah, definitely should have been in there <laughs> uh, over, especially over the reader. And in fact, none of my top five have any overlap with their top five. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, anyway, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. All right. Well, so we're, we're back around to your number two. So, uh, number two is a movie. It's another one's probably a bit more obscure to people. Um, but it's a documentary and it's a film called, uh, Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father. Um, this is a movie that I only discovered because people said like, oh man, go in knowing nothing and you'll just be watching this unfurl. And I completely agree with what they were saying. So the basic thing i can say is it's a film directed written and scored by this uh this director uh who ended up uh, just making a movie about his friend who was having a child and that's all i'll say um the the director by the way it's kurt queen um and uh i won't say much about what sort of happens from there uh but it's such an enthralling movie that takes you down so many different paths that your mind will be just like really blown by the directions this actual story goes and i think it's presented in a way that's very it's it's kind of plain it definitely does feel like it's from a first time director who hasn't done much of anything in terms of actually making a documentary but the story is so palpable and the scope of it's very intimate in a way that as the movie goes along with particularly in any card you'll realize why it's so intimate a story um you really get immersed in the tragedy and the beauty and all the weirdness that happens with this particular uh, sort of intimate story about a father wanting to send something to his son, basically. And I think it's an incredible journey that I don't want to spoil anything more about. 
uh, but it will crush your soul. And kind of like Snacky in New York, it's another movie where, like, I don't know if I'll watch it again because I was went through so many different roller coasters of emotions watching it. Um, but I, I love this long movie, and it should definitely be seen by more people. Yeah, this is another blind spot. I, this is actually literally, I, I looked at some titles of movies last week with the intention of catching up. And I swear, I'm not trying to like make some giant excuse for myself. I, I genuinely did. And I saw this title. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've been re- hearing really great things about that for years. And then again, I left, I ran out of time this week. I'm, I'm going to be doing better about this for my 2007 list next, <laughs> next week because, you know, things fell into place with my job and, and all of that. But I just had you know, uh, shifts come up and I had stuff come up and, and, and all of that. And so it just, yeah, it turned into a, uh, a bit of a crap shoot, a crap shoot in terms of what I could do. And all I could do was catch up with class, with the class. Um, and that's the first, cause that's the first one that I chose, but I do need to see this one. I've heard it is a tremendously emotional experience and, uh, yeah, so I just I just need to plan to watch that and then something happy after. Yes, please do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, my number two, I mean, we're coming back around now to two of your choices because I've already passed on two of them. But my number two, you mentioned it at number seven, and that is The Wrestler from director Darren Aronofsky. Uh, yeah, I love this film. I love Rourke's performance in it. I mean, he is famously somebody who is not easy to get along with on sets. Um but they did, they apparently did a pretty terrific job of covering that up uh, between him and Marissa Tomei and him and Evan Rachel Wood as his daughter, who's fantastic in this storyline where he's trying to a- attempt a reconciliation with her. And um, yeah, what I love about it is that this is a sports movie that isn't really about trying to get us to that one final match that a lot of sports movies would do. Um, even though technically that one final match is important as it, you know, as the, the, um, the narrative, which follows him after he's had a heart attack and is trying to come back, it is important. It isn't important really to see it happen so much as it is, uh, important that we know what kind of a person he becomes or perhaps, uh, confirms him uh, over the course of this this story, and it's just Rourke that really makes this work. It's the performance that I would have picked from those nominees the that particular year. Um, yes, over Sean Penn, who won. I do love Penn's performance. I mean, I've already made that clear, but I think that Rourke is doing something that was both perfect for him because he kind of fits the world physically. I mean, he's a guy with a lot of, you know. Uh, muscle on his body let's say and it's uh, and has you know a very very much a kind of a square face i guess you know just just being clear um here i mean he played that character in sin city that should tell you so uh yeah he just he fits the role perfectly but it's also against type because he's not playing a guy that who is prone to violence that he gives into and that's the kind of roles that Rourke was uh you know famous and got uh, got a role in the expendables for um, you know, for making his career. And so, yeah, it's just a perfect kind of twist of a role for him uh, that I love. And I, I love the other performances too. Wood's great. Tomei's great. Uh, it's a very small film in terms of it's, you know, uh, it's a lot of realism. It's not a lot of big, um, you know, brash sets or shot compositions or anything like that. 
It is shot tremendously well by Maurice Alberti, who also incidentally shot Creed for Ryan Coogler later on, which doesn't surprise anybody who's seen both of those movies, the way that she's able to um, uh, compose and light fight scene, uh, you know, th- these matches uh, is pretty amazing. And, um, but it's also a very big film in that it's really far reaching about Randy. It's an enti- about an entire arc in a certain way. And I, I just, I love that. Um, yeah. Just a tremendous acting coup for him and casting coup for, for Aronofsky to get this guy to do it. I think you're right. I mean, it was originally conceived to be part of the story of black Swan. And I think it wasn't like Nicholas cage supposed to play this role or something. It was, it was some choice like that. I can't remember if it was him or not, but, uh, but it was somebody way outside the, the norm. And then, you know, this even interestingly enough, even weirder choice came along with Rourke who really hadn't taken a role like this, even close to it. Um, maybe Barfly, I guess. I haven't seen Barfly. I know that that's more of a straight straight man role than, than he usually took back in the uh, um, late 80s. But yeah, uh, it's it was quite a twist for him, and I I, uh, I loved it. So yeah, number two, your number seven, The Wrestler. I mean, we obviously agree. Anything else you want to say about it? or just um, No, I mean, I, move on to I, I mean everything one. I said before <laughs> and then everything you said, I, I completely agree with. Evan Richard Wood doesn't get enough love for that movie yeah especially there's a mm-hmm. the bit where he comes back after forgetting to go to dinner with her that sequence is like so mm-hmm. crushing it's so sad when oh, that happens yeah. um, oh, man. It's, that's the that's the one uh, featured in the trailer i think right where uh he's like i just wasn't uh he's kind of crying they're outside well, well no no that's actually that's when they have a little asbury oh. park like adventure that's really cute where they're like going around and then after that when he forgets to actually go to dinner with her um and um it's it's it is so soul crushing though like the way that she completely yeah gets him out of his life and um yeah just i I still remember being so on a high after sin city and this i'm like oh man mickey rourke like i I didn't know this guy that well i've seen some of his earlier performances it's like oh i kind of get what people were initially interested in him but at that time i'm like oh my what's this guy gonna do next and then iron man 2 and then nothing <laughs> and, and, and finding out a lot about like oh his sort of onset behaviors like did you know the fact that like the kissing scene at the bar was shot because in the way where like Marissa Tomei said I'm only doing one take I hate this guy I don't want to be near him and if I'm gonna kiss him it's gonna be one take so get mm. every angle you can and Yarnowski had like five different cameras in that bar set <laughs> so he could film that one <laughs> I did not yeah. know that <laughs> it's insane oh my gosh yeah. wow yeah I mean I know that he absolutely despised shooting iron man 2 absolutely despised it and i know that everybody else kind of i mean except for like robert downey jr i think they're mm-hmm. old friends uh other than other than him like everybody else just couldn't couldn't stand him and i i, I do remember that and of course i i'm assuming everybody got along with him on the expendable set just because you know those are his old friends but yeah i mean unless you're i guess his old friend <laughs> he's, he's not going to do very well uh yeah he's not going to be very courteous um yeah but, uh, but yeah, whatever the case, you know, whatever Aronofsky was able to get out of him, it just, yeah, it, it shows up on screen and it's, it's amazing. So anyway, all right, well, we're, we're back around to year number one. I guess I know what it is. <laughs> process of uh, elimination. I think that you, <laughs> yeah, process of elimination. Yes, yes. Exactly. Uh, my number one is the one that you mentioned, I believe it was your number nine, right? It's uh, In Bruges, yes. uh, which as you mentioned, um, it's a, 
it, it's a sort of um, initially starts as a crime caper kind of comedy in a way that I was worried revisiting this because like, like the moment you said like, hey, we're going to do a 2008 list, this immediately came to mind, but I hadn't seen it since around that time. So I was like, okay, is this going to hold up as well? Is this going to feel more like a Tarantino ripoff from like the mid-90s? Came after Pulp Fiction. It has the, <laughs> the danger of being that at certain points. But what I love is the fact that it's a movie about incredibly broken people in this profession that is obviously about mm. literally breaking people, breaking their skulls apart and stuff like that for being, you know, a hitman. And what I just love is the fact that it really immerses you in the fact that, like, all of these people can be sort of, like, engaging, but also they have this distance because of their profession that makes them sort of mm. at arm's length at all times. And I love the fact that he keeps that consistent with, like, the relationship between Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Um, I think that marriage of those two performances works so perfectly. And this was also Colin Farrell coming back after being sort of like the it boy in 2003 and then getting into a drunken stupor for a while and then coming back beautifully. Mm -hmm. And I believe a golden globe winning performance. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. It has so much like, you know, controversial things that he says in here, but also you can tell it's like, Oh, it's from a place of this guy has nobody who actually pays attention to him. So he has to seek attention in this very brash way. Um, and I think him and Gleason work so beautifully off each other, sort of like a surrogate big brother, little brother relationship. Um, someone you didn't mention, but who I think is phenomenal is Ray Fiennes, one of his funniest fucking performances, mm. <laughs> sorry, in this movie. <laughs> he is so amazing. In this movie. The whole scene with the telephone just like left me in stitches. Mm. And he, oh like even the call where it's like, oh, is he actually left? And Brendan Gleeson has to pretend like Colin Farrell's left is hysterical. Um, but it also gets to, like you mentioned, sort of this big, powerful moment that really um, hits hard with uh, the on Raglan Road sort of climactic sequence, I think is one of my favorite sequences mm -hmm. of this year and this decade, probably. It's such a great way of like finishing off one of the characters. I won't spoil much, but it does so much to like really immerse you in where all these characters are at this particular point. It's propulsive and it's sad, but it's beautiful in its own weird way. Um, and yeah, it leads off into an ending that I agree is so like weird and um, uh, just sort of puts you in this weird dream state that Bruges kind of is. I especially really appreciate this movie upon going to Amsterdam, which is in the same place, but it has a lot of similar aesthetics. And you feel like the idea that this place is like very charming and quaint, but also so isolating at the same time. Um, and I, I think it, it's a stunning film. It's one of my favorites of that decade. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because I feel like the mix here of this dark comedy and the hum the kind of the frail humanity that you're talking about is at the end, is, I'm talking about at the end here. Weirdly enough, when I kind of came to the end of Parasite, I was reminded of how I felt about this ending. It's very different kind of setups, but in terms of how they reached that last, the last shot, um, here, which paired with the narration is just heartbreaking because uh, it leaves you kind of dangling off this precipice of uncertainty almost uh, in, a, in a very uh, bold way. I, I, I love it. I love the ending and, and I love the performances. Um, it's interesting that, <laughs> that my number nine was your number one because your number nine, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> is my number one. And that is the other movie that I passed passed on, which is Rachel wow. getting married. <laughs> uh, yeah, I that's that is amazing how that how that happened. Uh, but um, I, I it's it's just because I read Thomas's mind. Guys. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna do this. No, um, 
No, but I love this movie. I just rewatched it recently. Uh, the separate from this because I I watched it. I think I rewatched it back in January, uh, well before any of this was going on, at least in the U.S. Uh, at this level, and so before I would have ever thought to do this podcast episode, um, I I just needed it for some reason. I just even though it's kind of a downer in a lot of ways. Um, I just really needed it. I, I needed to watch it again. I needed to have it in my life. And so one night I just popped my Blu-ray in and I watched it and it absolutely just really cemented itself. You know, it was one that I constantly went to after one viewing as the answer, you know, for the past few years, if this is my number one of 2008, it's really changed. And, you know, uh, just a couple of months ago, I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch this again. And yeah, it just, it really cemented itself as the best film of 2008 for me. And it's also got the best performance of that entire year, possibly just second to Heath Ledger. And that's Anne Hathaway um, as this young woman who has returned from rehab to, you know, um, attend, but not be a part of the wedding of her sister played by Rosemary DeWitt. Um, And, you know, I mentioned, I kind of hinted at the fact that this was my number one by saying that it had my favorite lead uh, lead female uh, performance of the year. It also has my favorite lead uh, fee, uh i'm sorry supporting female performance of the year um by the great great almost unmatched i think in terms of just what i've seen her in which is a lot less than she's been in but uh deborah winger uh who plays her and dewitt the dewitt character's mother uh and alongside bill Irwin as their dad is uh, winger is amazing in this film in a way that really sneaks up on you. I've been a fan of wingers for a while since I saw, uh, since I kind of discovered her honestly in a movie that's kind of hard to find these days, but it's very much worth seeking out. I don't know if you've seen it, Thomas, but it's shadowlands with uh, Anthony Hopkins uh, where she plays an American poet. And it's the story of CS Lewis played by Hopkins uh, falling in love with her uh, over the course of a civil marriage. And, um, She's she was just she just amazed me in that film her uh, command of the the dialogue and all of that and I've seen her in other things since then uh, terms of endearment the lovers uh, all of that I just I think that she is tremendous and this is a great performance uh, I think that she should have been nominated for this she wasn't um, and yeah I just I love how. Uh, much she kind of internalizes a lot of very harsh feelings that she has toward the Hathaway character and the whole situation that got her where she is, which is absolutely horrifying in a way that, you know, if people have seen like Manchester by the sea, it kind of has a similar uh, kick to it in terms of when you find out what's going on um, behind the scenes of this family. Um, It's a great film about addiction, the throes of addiction. It's a, Great film about guilt, great film about regret, great film about, you know, kind of culling the ability to forgive yourself for something, which is not easy for some. And um, yeah, Jonathan Demme, you know, I'm, I'm getting caught up on this guy's filmography. I just caught up with something wild mm-hmm. about a week ago. I great mean, movie. Yeah. yeah, love that film. Great. Yeah, very different, but it's, uh, but it's a great movie. And yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I'm I'm gotta I've gotta see his Talking Heads doc. I know that that's a, like a horrible, uh, <laughs> a horrible blind spot on my part because I love Talking Heads. But 
Um, but yeah, the dude can't can't miss. And he also did Silence of the Lambs and The Mancurian Candidate remake, which is very underrated, and just a bunch of movies that are fantastic. And um, you know, this is this is as different and as singular as a lot of those. And so, um, yeah, just is directed by him with this sense of you were there immediacy. Um, written by Jenny Lumet, I believe, the yes. daughter of Sidney Lumet. Pretty, yeah, pretty sure. So, um, yeah, I love this film. Kind of perfectly paired with The Wrestler at the top of my list. Both very, very raw, very real, um, but just really rewarding watches if you uh, if you can brave it because it's they're both tough. But um, but yeah, that is my number one is Rachel getting married. So now we'll just give you a quick recap. Uh, just quickly recap your All right, list. Number 10 was the Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading. Number 9 was Jonathan Demme's Rachel Getting Married. Number 8 was Happy Go Lucky by Mike Lee. Uh, number 7 was Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Uh, number 6 was Andrew Stanton's Wally. Number 5 was Tomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In. Number 4 was Charlie Kaufman's Nectady New York. Number 3 was Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Number two uh, was Kurt Queen's uh, Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father. And number one was uh, Martin McDonough's In Bruges. Nice, nice. All right. Well, my list at number 10, I had Ben Stiller's Wild and Very Funny Tropic Thunder. At number nine, I had Martin McDonough's In Bruges. Uh, at number eight, I had Laurent Conte's The Class. Seek that one out, folks. Number seven, I had David Fincher's the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. At number six, I had Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. At number five, Gus Van Zandt's Milk. At number four, John Patrick Shanley's Doubt. At number three, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. At number two, I had Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. And at number one, my pick for the best film, 2008, Jonathan Demme's Rachel Getting Married. And those have been our lists of the best films of the year 2008. Certainly ones to seek out. I do have a couple of, uh, you know, blind spots there that I need to get to. And, um, yeah. All right. Uh, so, Thomas, it has been great having you on. Uh, thank you so much for doing this with me because I'm trying to get content to people while they're, you know, stuck in their homes or whatever, wherever they're stuck in right now um uh if they're stuck somewhere and and you know just to give them some some stuff to listen to and some options of movies to watch because a lot of people are doing that right now a lot of people are watching movies as has been proven by the fact that emma and the invisible man have been really high rentals even though they're twenty dollars <laughs> i mean people are people are doing this people are getting some of their movies watched that they need to see i certainly am and uh, i thank you for coming on to help uh, to help me help them um, oh, here is where Kate's Joel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was a pleasure being on. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, where can people find well, you online? Well, um, I am on Twitter at not the who's Tommy. That's where I mainly sort of post things about. Um, as I mentioned at the top, I'm on uh, Double Edge Double Bill, which is a podcast that uh, is on Podbean and is on the ESO network. Uh, we can find a bunch of other great podcasts, but uh, we're also on like YouTube and Spotify and most places where you can get podcasts all around. Um, I also do some writing uh, for reviews and posting episodes of the show and such at uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com. That's M-A-R-I-A-N-I 
thomas.wordpress.com. Um, and I also do, I'm an associate editor at a site called truesuperiorfans.com where we do satiric superhero news uh, with great things like uh, Bloodshot mm. is going to be on your phone immediately downloading. You can't get rid of it. Just like fun, uh, satirical, <laughs> almost onion style articles like that. Um, yeah, and just also follow uh, the podcast at DEDBpod uh, for the Double H Double Bills on Twitter and Facebook as well. Nice, nice. All right. Well, you guys know the the gist with me. My my website's kind of not doing anything right now, but if you want to read some of my old reviews, uh, it's uh, joelonfilm.com. Uh, if you want to follow my ramblings on Twitter, it's at Real Joel Copeling. That's R E E L J O E L C O P L I N G. And uh, search my name on Letterboxd if you want to find me on there. Uh, I try to log stuff as I watch it, although it's been kind of dead lately. Um, and yeah, if you want to follow this podcast, it's most places that you can find podcasts except YouTube. Uh, not YouTube. There's a long story behind that uh, people probably remember. But um, we are on Spotify, Spreaker, iTunes, iHeartRadio, um, CastBox. Uh, I saw some other ones when I was looking recently that I forgot the name of. But we are a lot of places right now. So this has been more extra content for you from Real Me In, colon, a movie podcast where you didn't really ask for it, but we gave it to you anyway. Um, I am one of your co-hosts. Joel Copeland. Chase says hello always. He didn't tell me to say hello, but he always says hello. Uh, and, uh, and he's listening on the other end. But, um, but yeah, that has been a new episode. Stay tuned for next week when I am joined by Chicago critic Mark Dusick to talk about the best films of 2007. Uh, should be around the time this drops this week. So yeah, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and this has been Real Me In. Thanks, everybody. You're awesome. Have a good one. Bye-bye.